Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in the book of Amos. Tonight we are in chapter 3 of the book of Amos. So grab a Bible and turn to Amos. Amos chapter 3 is a continuation of God explaining why it is that he is going to turn Israel over to the Assyrian captivity. Like the other minor prophets that we are looking at in this study, They are all telling both Judah and Israel that God has had enough of their rebellion and their worshiping of foreign gods and not keeping the Sabbaths and not following his laws, and he is finally going to punish them for their behavior. But in chapter 3, God's going to get really, really specific, and when I read passages like this, chapter 3 is full of prose, it's very poetic language. It's very interesting reading. It's great writing, especially considering how ancient it is. But when I read passages like this, I can't help but think about the theology that lays behind the statements we're going to read tonight. Because some of the statements that we're going to read don't fit any other theological paradigm than what we believe about God's absolute sovereignty. The debate, the current debate in the church, is broken down really into two very large categories. One category is God is absolutely sovereign and men have no free will and no ability to choose or decide or obligate God or change God's mind. And the other side is men have free will to at least some degree. Some would argue that men have an autonomous free will and that they can do whatever they want any time they want. But then they have to say that God is always reacting. God is up there hoping to do things. God makes plans. But he is dependent on human beings to cooperate with him and allow him to do the things that he wants to do. And so that's really where the battle has been for a very, very long time. Is God absolutely sovereign? Is everything that's happening on the planet playing out exactly according to God's predestined purpose and plan? Or... Has God got kind of a general plan, and he knows the end, and he's strong enough to kind of steer things his way, but he's also dependent on human beings who he has allowed to just do whatever they want. The furthest extent of that is uh, open theology, the, the idea that God is still learning, that he doesn't really know what's going to happen. He has created men as independent free agents and put them on the planet, and God is up there kind of watching waiting to find out what's going to happen. And whatever people do, God goes, oh, that's what's going to happen. So that's the broad spectrum. But as we're going to see tonight, reaching back again, 2,700 years roughly, reaching all the way back to the prophets predicting what God is going to do in Israel, they all have a very firm concept of who God is and what God is like in their dealings with God, in their interactions with God, in the necessity to say what God tells them to say, they are very conscious that God is absolute and that God's completely in charge and that there is no turning God, there is no changing God's mind. So let's think about Israel for just a moment because God is going to make reference directly to the fact that he chose Israel. So let's think about that. He chose Abraham, Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. His dad, according to extra biblical information, his dad was an idol maker. And so the chances that Abraham cared anything about Yahweh, pretty slim. And yet God chose Abraham, picked him out and said, leave your land, leave your father, go to a land that I'm going to show you. Take your people and just start walking. I'll let you know when you get there. Those descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with each successive generation, and we looked at all this when we were teaching our way through the book of Genesis, each of those successive generations, God picked and chose. 
when Abraham had his first child with his handmaid, Hagar, he loved Ishmael. He went to God and said that he wished Ishmael could be before him forever. And God rejected Ishmael and said, no, you and your wife, Sarah, are going to have a child, a child of promise, just like I told you. And then he said, through Isaac shall thy seed be called. So God picked, he chose. Your descendants, the ones who are going to get this land that I've promised to you forever in perpetuity, the ones that are going to get this land are going to be the descendants of Isaac and are not going to be the descendants of Ishmael. And that's just how that's going to be. And then Isaac and his wife, Rebecca have twins. And while there's twins in a womb, of course, in uh, Romans 9, when Paul talks about it, he says the fact that the twins are still in the womb is evidence that they hadn't done anything yet. No good, no evil, and yet God chose and said, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. God started picking and choosing right away. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then the 12 tribes come from them, and God picks and chooses again and says that out of Judah, that's where Messiah is going to come. And yet, the birthright is going to go to Ephraim, God picking, choosing, deciding everything. Through courses of human history, through generations of people coming and going, God decides the course, the genealogy that is ultimately going to lead to his son coming to the planet. And as I like to point out, you're talking about hundreds of generations of people there, where if at any point any person had decided of their own free will to do something different than what God determined to be done, then God's not right. God has said that, that the Messiah is going to come through Judah, but what if along all the line of Judah heights, all the way through Jesse and through David and through Solomon, down those generations, what if somewhere along the line somebody changed their mind and didn't do it God's way? But the fact of the matter is, human history proves that they did. Everything worked out exactly the way God wanted. As he was picking and choosing and declaring and prophesying what it was he was going to do, it all worked out exactly the way God said, which means one of two things. Either God is really lucky or really sovereign and can, in fact, declare the end from the beginning and can, in fact, steer not just human history but the individual lives of individual people in order to accomplish things exactly the way he says. Now, Amos is about to say that the reason that Israel is so very guilty before God is that God only chose Israel out of all the people on the earth, out of all the families, out of all the nations. God made all the nations. God made all the people groups. You go all the way back to the Tower of Babel. God confused their languages and sent them out so that they would gather according to their languages, and become tribes and people groups and Nations and nationalities. God did all that. And yet out of all of them, he chose Israel. And Amos is about to say so. And he's going to say, you have an obligation to God far beyond what all the rest of the people groups have. Because God chose you. And he says, you only have I chosen. And it's the Hebrew word for known. You only have I known. You only have I had this intimate relationship with. You only have I revealed myself to. But then in that revelation, what did he do? He imposed the law on Israel. He put them into Egypt, like he told Abraham. They're going to go in. They're going to be there for 400 years. They're going to come out. Greater number of people than they went in. And when they come out, I'm going to bring them back to this very land, land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to give them this land. And along the way, along the journey, going from Egypt to the promised land, he stops at Mount Sinai, and he imposes his law on them. He doesn't ask them anything. He doesn't check with them. In fact, he even says, stay back. Stay away from my mountain." While I'm on the mountain talking to Moses, even if a dog comes and touches the foot of this mountain, you drive him through with a dart. Stay away. And he gives Moses the rules, the law, the Ten Commandments and all the precepts, tells them how to worship him, how to draw close to him, how to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, what furniture to put in it, how often to come into the tabernacle, how often to have feasts, how often to come to Jerusalem. It lays out the entire 
format for how he is to be approached and worshipped. And does not say, now go down and check with them and see if anybody's uh, got any objection to this idea. Because it's a hard law. It's a difficult law. It's a lot of rules. And God even tells Moses while they're on Mount Sinai, they're not going to keep it. But I'm going to impose it on them. And then just to up the ante, once I've imposed it on them, I'll attach a curse to it. And if they don't do it, I'll curse them. I mean, that is a real imposition on these people. God says, you're obligated to me because I chose you. And I chose you unlike any other family group on the planet. No other nation knows me the way that you know me. I haven't sent prophets to any other nation the way I've sent them to you. I haven't given any of the rest of them my law. I haven't told the rest of them how to worship me. You're not going to find any more tabernacles in any other wildernesses. There's only this one place where God can be found. Yahweh is present among his people, Israel. Pillar of cloud during the day, pillar of fire by night. I'm right here with you. So they had not only the grand privilege of God in their midst, but there was this great obligation that went with having God in their midst. You get all that? Now, by the way, God hasn't changed. Nothing about God changes. There's no variableness with God, neither the shadow of turning, James tells us. You're not going to see anything different about God. And he continues to this very day to choose, to elect, to call people to himself, and then to impose himself on those people and obligate them. Be different. Come out from among them. Touch not the unclean thing. Be holy because I am holy. These are all directives to God's people that were in the Old Testament, carried over into the New Testament, because there is an obligation that goes with the fact that God chose you. But Israel is especially guilty in God's eyes at this point because God chose them. So what is the underlying theology of what Amos starts out with in chapter 3? Let's read it. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel. So this is a negative. He's prophesying against you. He's not prophesying good for you. He's prophesying trouble for you. Why? It is against the entire family which he has brought up from the land of Egypt. Okay, this is about all 12 tribes. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Verse 2, because you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So the reason he's punishing them is because he chose them. You are my unique, distinct people. You are separate from all the other people groups on the planet. You are the only people group that was meant to be a theocracy. You are the only people group that is ultimately going to be a king where my son sits on the throne, rules over you, and is your actual physical, literal king. That is completely unique and distinct from all other people groups in the history of planet Earth. But it comes with an obligation. It comes with the obligation of, I did choose you. I do expect you to be unique. I do expect you to be different. Now, if you think that's changed, go read the book of Hebrews. Whom the Lord loves, he coddles and hugs and gives <laughs> noogies to. And no, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. Okay, well, what does that mean? That means that if he has chosen you and if you belong to him and you act up and you rebel and you go after your sinful flesh, He's not going to lose you because he has chosen you. You do belong to him. That relationship can't be changed. But he is going to correct you. He is going to redirect you. He is going to get your attention. He is going to steer you back to the right path. And that's what he's doing with Israel. He's not losing Israel. He's not giving up on Israel. He's correcting Israel because they are his son, because they are 
his chosen because they are his elect nation. Therefore, he's going to correct them. And the correction, when you're talking about a God who's in charge of everything in human history, if he wants to correct you, he can correct you for thousands of years. But that's why all the prophets across the board all say the same thing, which is you're going to go through this correction and it's going to refine you and it's going to purify you and it's going to change you, but then he's going to bring you back and then he's going to regather you and then he's going to plant you in the land and David's greater son is going to sit on the throne and and you are going to become the kingdom that I intend for you to begin with. You're ultimately going to be the theocracy that I intend you to be. But first, a time of correction and a time of jealousy. That's Paul's argument, that the reason that God scattered Israel and then turned his attention to the Gentiles isn't because he gave up on Israel and now said, well, now it's all about the church. You know, once I got to the church, ta-da, that's what I was really meaning to do. So now they've replaced Israel completely. No, Paul's argument is God is now going to bring Gentiles who don't have the promises, who don't have the covenants, who don't have Moses, who don't have the prophets, don't have any of that. He's now going to bring them by grace into the new covenant, into relationship with him to make Israel jealous. And during this time of jealousy, God is going to draw Israel back. And ultimately then, when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, then all Israel will be saved. So the great divine plan of God is still working itself out in human history. We just happen to be sitting in this moment of time right now between the Old Testament and the scattering and the eschatology of his return and the regathering and the establishment of the kingdom. We're right there in the middle of those two things. But look at the theology that lays at the heart of what Amos wrote. That's my point. You can't fit this theology into an Arminian framework. That's my point. Not that Amos knew the word Arminian. That just never came up. But the theology is of a God who is in such control that he can say, I elected, I chose, I only knew you of all the people groups on the earth. I have a unique relationship with you. Therefore, I have a different level of expectation from you. You have a different level of obligation to me. That is all absolute sovereignty. And the reason that he is going to punish them is because you only have I known, you only have I chosen, says the NASB, among all the families of the earth. That's not just sovereign election. That's choosing people groups over other people groups. And in this day and age, where uh, you're not supposed to say anything about anybody's ethnicity at all ever anywhere, you're supposed to just walk around blind to all that stuff, you've got God here saying, I chose one people group completely. I chose the Israelites above every other people group, which would mean that he can't run for president. <laughs> Never mind. And it's because I chose you that I'm going to punish you for all your iniquities. I pointed out how in uh, chapter 1 and 2, Amos likes these sevens, groups of sevens. Well, now he's going to do the same thing again. He's going to create seven pieces of prose, short little phrases that are about cause and effect. And he's going to say, if this happened, it's because that happened. If this hadn't happened, this wouldn't have happened. And it's going to culminate in, and if there's destruction and trouble, it's because God caused it. Here comes that sovereignty thing again. Let's read in verse 3. Do two men walk together unless they've made an appointment? Some of your translations will say unless they've made an agreement. In other words, what he's saying is if two people meet together, it's because they've agreed to meet together. Two men, uh, let's say uh, Jeff and I, what are the chances that at some point this week we're both just going to show up at the same restaurant at the same moment at the same table and just sit down and say, oh, well, this was fortunate, let's eat. The way we're going to end up at the same place at the same time 
It's because we've made an appointment. We've made an agreement between each other that this is what we're going to do. So that's the first point he brings up. He says, if two men are walking together, that's because they've agreed to do that. How can two walk together except they be agreed? They're going to agree with each other, and then they're going to meet each other, and that's when they're going to walk together. And the walking here together, by the way, has has much more to do than just let's get out and get some exercise. Usually this is where discussion happened. This is where the exchange of ideas happens. It's more than just walking. It's meeting with someone else in order to interact with them. And that's only going to happen if they've agreed in the first place. So that's his first example. Secondly, verse 4, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? You have to know a little bit about zoology and the way lions act to kind of understand this. I had to go online and read about it a little bit. A lion who's hiding in the tall grass won't give away his position. He won't make any noise. If he's just laying there growling, then antelopes and gazelles go, hey, there's a lion over there in the grass. You can hear him. He's over there hiding. But part of the way that a lion captures his prey, because he can't run any great distance, he's not like a leopard, he's not going to outrun anything, he overpowers the animal that he's going to get. And what he does is he lets out a roar, and the roar stuns the animal. There's a moment where the animal stops in his tracks because he's heard the roar. And I don't know if any of you have ever heard a lion roar at the zoo or anything. We have. And it's an amazing sound because it envelops you. It goes all the way around you. It's very interesting. It has this quality where you almost feel like he's behind me. He's in front of me. He's, where, where's it coming from? Well, that's what happens. He roars. The prey freezes. He pounces. Okay, so knowing that... Amos says, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No, he's going to wait till the prey. If the lion roars, he has a prey. No prey, no roar. Got it? Mm -hmm. This causes this. Without this, this doesn't happen. Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Okay, well, this is a reference to that contented growl as they're eating. Have you ever listened to wild animals eat? And they chuffing. chuffing. Is that the sound? Yeah, they make that, that contented sound, that reference. I, that was my impression. I don't know what that Football was. Football teams do that too. Football teams do it as well. Exactly right. Okay, so he says, do young lions do that in their den unless they've captured something? If they're hungry, they're not making that noise. It's only after mom or dad have dragged home something to eat and they are eating and they're content, they make the content noise. If this doesn't happen, this doesn't happen. Verse 5. Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground if there's no bait in it? No. A bird flying around looking for something to eat is not going to just go, hey, bird trap, I think I'll climb in. Not going to happen. You have to bait the trap, and that will bring the bird. But if there's no bait, no bird. If this doesn't happen, this doesn't happen. But if there's bait, you're more likely to catch a bird. And then on the same token, does a trap spring? Does it spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? No, because something has to trigger the trap. If there's nothing in the trap, the trap's just going to lay there. A bear trap is just going to lay there until something hits the uh, trigger. Mouse trap's just going to lay there with cheese on it until somebody comes after the cheese. The trap is only going to spring when there's actual prey going after the bait. Are you getting a picture for this? He's just laying out a series of, this doesn't happen without this. If this happens, it's only because this happened. Verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people tremble? You have to understand the trumpet thing. You've got guys on the wall, and you're living inside a walled city, and you feel pretty safe. You're just getting up every day, doing your work, everything else. But if they're being attacked by a foreign army, you have trumpeters on the wall that will call the army into configuration to get ready to close the gate and defend the wall. 
and they do it by blowing a series of trumpets. So if you're just out one day and you're getting some water from the well and you hear the trumpets, well, you know bad news is coming. And if you're supposed to be on a wall somewhere defending, you, you might die today. You don't know. This is bad news. If you hear the trumpets, bad news. They're not going to blow that trumpet unless there's actually people coming to attack. But if you hear the trumpet, you're going to tremble. If this happens, this happens. And then he sums it up by saying, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? In the first six, he's got people going, yep, I'm with you. Yep, I'm with you. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, okay, bird, trap, bait, got it. Okay, good, with you. Trumpet, tremble, got it. And then he uses that logic to corner his listeners and says, and if there is a calamity occurring in the city, do you think that's random? If something bad happens in a city, do you think that's just happenstance? No, the same God who is sovereign over everything has caused even this. Now, of course, his point in the largest context is you're about to be inhabited. You're about to be overrun by the Assyrians. A great many of you are going to go into captivity and you're going to be hauled out of your city and you're going to go serve as slaves. Many of you are never coming back to this land for thousands of years. And you're going to wonder in the midst of all that, well, where's God? I thought God loved us. I thought we were the chosen people. How could this be happening to us? So he starts with, you are the chosen people, and that's why he's punishing you. Because he did choose you. Out of all the nations on the earth, out of all the people groups, you only have I known, have I had this intimate relationship with. And everything that happens has a cause. It kind of sounds like Solomon writing, doesn't it? To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. Hear that? There's a particular time. There's a particular purpose. God is in charge. So this is not something unique that Amos is saying. He's simply bringing it into the context of judgment and saying God who is in charge of everything is also the one who's bringing the calamity. He's not the only one who said this. This is common among the prophets in general. At the same time that Amos is writing and prophesying in the north, this is the same time as Isaiah. Isaiah is a contemporary of Amos and is talking to the same people group. Obviously, Isaiah's prophetic career is much larger than Amos. Amos's prophetic career was only a couple of days, whereas Isaiah's went on for years. But Isaiah takes on the same approach and says the same thing. So keep your finger there. Turn over to Isaiah 45, I think. Yeah, let's go to Isaiah 45. This is a fairly common, reasonably well-known passage, but it fits perfectly into what we're talking about tonight. And we're going to start at verse 1 of Isaiah 45. Chapter 45 of the book of Isaiah, the first part of it, is God speaking to Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian king. And God saying, talk about absolute sovereignty, God saying to Cyrus that he's going to use him for Israel's benefit, and he's going to say, and you don't know me. I have no relationship with Cyrus where Cyrus would know me, but I'm going to use him, and I'm going to be sovereign over him, and I'm going to accomplish my will through him. This is what he says. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, by the way, I also should point out that this prophecy occurred roughly 150 years before Cyrus was even a king, which means for 150 years, there was a succession of kings in Persia that eventually led to a king who just happened to very fortunately be named Cyrus. What if his parents had decided to name him something else? You know, free will and all that. What if they had decided on a different Persian name? But they just happened, God gets so lucky, they just happened to name him Cyrus, and he just happened to be born and happened to be ruling in Persia as a world empire at this exact moment in time. It was so lucky. So the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed, in other words, the one that God 
identified, chose, and said, you're the one I'm going to use to do this. Whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him. So Cyrus is thinking, I am a great king. I conquered Babylon. I've even overwhelmed the Medes till they have joined me in my empire. We are the major empire in the world. I am really doing great here. And God takes complete credit for it and says, I took you by the right hand to subdue nations before you, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and I will make the rough places smooth. And I will shatter the doors of bronze, and I will cut through their iron bars. God says, I did all that. I opened the way for you. Every obstacle in your way, I got rid of it. That's why you swept through here and took over Babylon. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret palaces or secret places. In order that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. Why? For the sake of Jacob, my servant. For the sake of Israel, my chosen. For that reason, I have called you by your name, and I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I have no relationship with you. You're not worshiping me. I'm the God of Israel. But I'm going to make sure you know that the God of Israel used you. Now, history tells us that this prophecy was actually set in front of Cyrus. And they said, look, here, here's our scripture. We, we've had this around for about 150 years. We had a prophet named Isaiah. Here's what he said about you. He even named you by name. And that that became part of the reasoning, the rationale that Cyrus used for actually letting them go back and Rebuild the temple. So you're going to know that I'm the one that calls you by name, though you have not known me. Verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Look at verse 7. The one who forms the light and creates darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Probably about 20 years ago, I had a conversation with an uncle of mine. Christian guy, grew up Christian. Not necessarily real biblically adept, but very committed to what he believed. And we had a debate in my kitchen where he was kind of arguing for man's free will and God reacting to what men did. And I was defending God's sovereignty. And he said, well, the way you're saying it, then, then God would even be in charge of the bad stuff. And I said, oh, but he is. But he is in charge of the bad stuff. And he said, well, you would have to show me that in the Bible somewhere. I took him right there. I took him to Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light. I form the darkness. When good stuff happens, that's me. When calamity happens, that's me. And he stood there for a moment, and he stared at me, and finally he said, I have to rethink everything I know. Right. And I went, bingo. <laughs> yes, you do. By the way, I spoke to him about two weeks ago. He's still working on it. So, but look at God's declaration of himself. I'm the one forming the light. I'm the one creating the darkness. I'm causing the well-being and I'm creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Verse 8, so drip down, O heavens, from above and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Has that happened? Is the world just dripping with righteousness? No. No. But does it have to happen? Yes. Yeah. Because God who says, I'm the one who does everything. The same God who predicted Cyrus 150 years in advance and then made human history play out exactly the way he said. That same God said that the time has to come when the heavens drip down from above and the clouds pour down righteousness. And the earth opens up and salvation will bear fruit and righteousness will spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. 
Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. The NASB says, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. I kind of like the King James. Does it use the word pottery and potsherds there? Mm-hmm. What does it say? Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Yeah. Do you know what a pot shirt is? Yeah, it's a broken pot. Let the crack pots argue with the crack pots is basically what it says. Amen. Yes, amen. <laughs> yeah. Then they'll vote another crack pot into office and think everything's better. Woe to the one that quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the earthenware vessels of the earth. They can argue with each other, but you can't argue with God. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing that you are making, is it going to say he has no hands? No, of course not. The potter uses his hands to make the thing. The thing that's being made is not going to say he has no hands. You're being formed by his hands. The pot on a potter's wheel knows enough to know that he's in the hands of the potter and the potter can do whatever he wants. But the potsherds of the earth, oh, they argue. They fight against that idea. And yet here is God saying, I am in charge of all this. Light, dark, evil, good. I do all these things because I'm the potter. I can do whatever I want. Verse 10, woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? The idea there is a baby being born going, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? No, the baby has no options here. The baby has no choice. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker. Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. The reason that's interesting is that the chapter we're reading is about to end with God declaring that he is the Lord God of hosts. Same thing Isaiah is saying. At the same time, they are declaring that the God who is in charge of the armies in heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, that God does whatever he's pleased to do. And what he is going to do is punish Israel. And they don't get to ask why and what are you doing and where are you? He's going to punish them because he chose them they are a unique people to him they have a unique obligation to him and when it happens they can't say why is this happening it has a cause and the cause is God you getting it you getting the big picture but yet again do you see how this is the theology of absolute sovereignty this is not a theology that you can fit comfortably into a free will theology it just doesn't fit Okay, back to, back to Amos. Amos 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Okay, the point he's making here is he is prophesying to them. And he is saying, God is going to do this, but God is also telling you that he's going to do this. Because once he has said it, There's no way it's not going to happen. It's not just going to happen and everybody's going to be blindsided by it. It's going to happen after you've been told it's going to happen so that there is no other conclusion but, well, God did this because God said he was going to. So this is happening because God decided this is going to happen. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets, and then a lion has roared, the same literary structure that he used earlier in this chapter. If this happens, then this happens. If a lion roars, then who will not fear? And back in chapter 1, he referred to God as a roaring lion. So now God is roaring. Now God is in charge. Now God is displaying his power, displaying his authority. And so the appropriate response is fear. But instead, most people's response is arrogance. But the appropriate response, once you know that God is absolutely sovereign, once you know that he's completely in charge and he does whatever he wants, the appropriate response is to get on your face in front of that God. But human beings and their phenomenal ego 
respond by shaking their fist and saying, I won't have this. I'm in charge. Proclaim, verse 9, proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and in the citadels of the Egyptians. Okay, what this is is Ashdod was a major city among the Philistines. The Philistines were a people group that had not only been defeated by the Israelites, and God delivered them from the Philistines, but the Philistines also had all the foreign gods and all the Baal worship. Egypt, God had delivered Israel out of Egypt. Egypt had its whole pantheon of gods, many of whom God had openly set to shame with the various plagues, the ten plagues that he brought through Egypt that were all plagues designed against the various gods of Egypt. And so now God is calling these representatives. This is not literal. He's creating sort of a stage play here and saying, go and get representatives from the fortresses of the Philistines and the fortresses in Egypt and tell them to come look at what's going on in Israel. Because you would think, after having been delivered from both Egypt and the Philistines, you would think that Israel would be worshiping their God, that they'd be doing great, that, they, that everything would be fine in Israel now because they are the people of God after all. So he calls, proclaim in the citadels in Ashdod and in the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions that are in her midst. So God is calling Israel's enemies to come testify against Israel for the way that they are mistreating each other internally, the way that they as a nation have turned away from the statutes and the rules of God and the, the societal fairness that God built into his law and how they are abusing the poor and how they are enriching themselves and fattening themselves and the whole time arrogantly thinking that God doesn't see, doesn't know, doesn't care. So God is calling their enemies to come and see and witness how bad they have become. Verse 10, they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. Well, there's an indictment. Not only are they not doing right, they don't know how to do right. They don't even have the capacity to do right. It's not even in their ability to do right. That's how wrong they are. By the way, does that not also describe total depravity? Yeah, here comes that theology thing again. I said at the beginning, pay attention to the theology that lays behind what Amos has to say. Not only are they not doing right, but God doesn't blame their free will for their lack of rightness. He doesn't say, they're not doing right because, well, they made a choice not to do right. No, they're not doing right because they can't do right. And that is the condition of people who don't have God, who don't have the spirit of God. Left to themselves, all human beings are incapable of doing right before God. John Calvin and his reformer buddies did not just make this stuff up. That's my point. It's all the way through the Bible. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. These who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels, in their fortresses. Okay, so that's the case. That's the situation. Verse 11 says, therefore, therefore, thus says the Lord God. Here's what he's going to do. He's now going to predict the Assyrian captivity. An enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you, and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away. Here's what this is about. If you were a shepherd and you were hired by somebody to watch their flock, there were thieving shepherds. There were shepherds that would cull sheep out of the flock and go start their own little flock or maybe sell it to somebody else, put a little money in their pocket. If you were an honest shepherd, 
if a lion or a wolf or some animal got one of the sheep, you would try, you would fight the lion, you would fight the wolf to get something, an ear, a leg, a something, in order to prove to your employer that you didn't steal the sheep, in order to prove that a wild animal got the sheep. And so God says, that's what Israel's going to be like. I'm going to have them attacked in such a way that the only thing you're going to be able to pull from them is a, is a bloody ear or a torn off leg. They're just going to be devastated the way that a lamb is devastated by a lion. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away. With the corner of a bed and with the cover of a couch. What that's talking about is that in Samaria, there was a great deal of wealth and therefore a great deal of leisure and luxury in the upper classes that they had achieved by the way that they had oppressed the lower classes and the poor. We've been reading about that in the first two chapters. And so he's saying that even those who were laying on their bed, laying on their couch, being comfortable, are going to be the victims of this tearing and this ripping. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob. Interesting, again, that God uses this, this house of Jacob nomenclature. He started out with, this is the whole house of Israel, but whenever God wants to remind them of who they are and what he took them from, he goes back and uses that name, heel catcher. He goes back and uses that name of your supplanters. Remember that Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Israel, one who wrestled with God and succeeded, you know, prince that has power with God, however, however you decide to translate it. It's a very positive name given to a really bad guy who was a heel catcher and a supplanter and who swindled his brother out of his birthright for some soup and then even fooled his dad into believing that he was his brother. This is not a good guy. But God redeemed him. God changed him. God even changed his name. And then national Israel, whenever God is mad with them, He'll refer to them as Jacob again to remind them who they really are. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, here's that language, the God of hosts. In that phrase, he uses Lord, that's Yahweh. He uses God, that's Adonai. These are names of sovereignty, of absolute control and rule, and then adds the phrase, the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts. That means the one who is in charge of the armies of heaven. It's that language that uh, Daniel uses, Nebuchadnezzar uses it. That God is in charge of the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stop his hand or say, what are you doing? That's that name that God gives himself. A personal name that God applies to himself to say, I'm the one that's in charge of everything and everyone. I am Lord of hosts. God is using his highest, most sovereign names and says, this is what the Lord God, the God of hosts, declares. In other words, I'm going to do this. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. What's going on in Bethel? Do you remember? We've been reading about it for a long time out of First and Second Kings. The golden calf reaching all the way back to Jeroboam the first. And now God takes it personally and says, I'm going to destroy the altars at Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off so that they fall to the ground. And I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish. In other words, all the people who are wealthy, wealthy enough that they could Summer in the north where it's cooler, and they could winter in the south where it's warmer. The people who can afford to live in luxury in ivory houses, he says that he is going to smite them because of the way that they have abused their brethren. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house, and the houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. So that's chapter 3 of the book of Amos. Interesting, huh? Mm. I like that chapter a lot. I like the way Amos uses language. I like the way that he uses examples and pictures in order to help people understand what it is he's saying. But if nothing else, we need to recognize 
that the theology we believe where God is concerned, proper use of the word theology there, what we believe about God in terms of his sovereignty and that it takes his electing grace in order for anybody to know him or have a relationship with him, and that human beings left to themselves are incapable of pleasing him, can't do right. In fact, don't know how to do right, have no capability to do right. That is all the fundamental theology that we believe, but it is also the very same theology that the prophets believed and that the prophets taught. So we're not advocating any new thing or any unique thing we're just saying what the Bible continues to say, which is that God is in absolute control, absolute charge. He is, after all, the Lord of hosts, and he tells us that, gives himself that proper name. I'm the God that's in charge of everything. And that means whatever happens, whatever you go through, whatever you're going through, whatever you're in the midst of, whatever trials, whatever difficulties, whatever you're going through, then that's exactly what he intended for you to go through. Because it is impossible for you to be going through something good or bad that he didn't intend that he isn't sovereignly in charge of. If you could be going through something that God did not intend, then you are the first person in human history who has managed to supplant the will of God. And I just don't think you're that clever or big or capable. I had someone ask me, this goes back a little while ago, they said, how do I know that I'm in the will of God? And I said, please tell me how you think you could get out of it. Whatever's happening, that's the will of God. You got it? Yes, sir. And by the way, you want it to be that way. Because the will of God for all his people comes to a very good conclusion. You want the will of God to play out if part of his will is to make you joint heir with his son. Well, then you want his will and you don't want yours. If his will is to bring you to a place where there is joy abounding and no more tears and no more death and where we will finally be able to worship him genuinely in spirit and in truth without our sinful, depraved bodies and minds getting in the way, if that stuff sounds good to you, well, that's what he has in mind for you. That's his will for you. You want his sovereign will to come to pass. Amen. Right? right. Yes. Well, then we're done. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.